Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. Which is no good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the West Side Chicago representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. And we've got a very informative show for you today. We'll be talking about Joe Biden's stimulus plan, why Alana Newhouse uh, says that everything in America is broken, and we'll be revisiting my sports tribalism theorem. So grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but think like a Christian. But before we get into all this, man, I just want to make sure I know how my man is doing. Chris, uh, how, how you doing? What you get into for your MLK uh, weekend? Yeah, you know, so I'm doing well. Uh, I actually took the MLK weekend to to rest and uh, try to recover just from being a little bit under the weather. Uh, but, you know, just had a, a good chance to read a lot and listen to a lot of uh, kind of reflective stuff um, for the moment. So it was a good weekend. It was good for me, too, man. I, I rested a lot as well, man. And we know rest is never bad. I mean, partially, we didn't have too much of a choice, right? Usually we, you know, the Ann campaign usually is in downtown Atlanta uh, participating in the MLK uh, march slash parade. But uh, we couldn't do that this year because of uh, uh, COVID. And so just took the, the time to talk to the kids about MLK, what he represented, how he loved Jesus, just like they did, how he was from Atlanta, just like they were uh, and had a good time with the kids, man. But got a lot of rest myself. That's dope. Yeah, man. So, all right, man, let, let's take it on, man. We got a lot to talk about today, and we're going to start off talking about, as I said earlier, uh, Joe Biden's stimulus. Now, now, Chris, it, it's fair to say that uh, President-elect Joe Biden, who might be president by the time that you hear this, had a sense of urgency last week when he announced his $1.9 trillion stimulus plan. Now, the speech came at a time which was 343 days since the first American had died of COVID. And we know that now we've lost more than 400,000 Americans. Uh, I think that's, you know, that's a, a big number and, and definitely should make us, us pause for a second to really understand the significance of what's been going on at this time. Now, he talked about a, a few things. He talked about the loss of life, obviously, but he also talked about the loss of our way of life. And I thought this was a strong part of uh, his address. He talked about the lost jobs and he also talked about the loss of quality of life for a lot of Americans. He said that we were facing twin crises. The first crisis being uh, the pandemic. The second crisis being the crisis in the economy. 
And he explained how the top 1% in America had gained uh, $1.5 trillion during this time, which was four times the amount that the bottom 50% had. Um, Biden, who was sitting right next to uh, Kamala, who, well, he was standing up, but Kamala Harris was sitting right next to him. Uh, he, he outlined a, a two-step plan for combating these uh, this twin crises. Uh, he, the first part of the plan was the American Rescue Plan. Uh, this was a plan to uh, tackle the pandemic and to get direct financial relief to those Americans who needed it. The second part of the plan, which he was going to talk about in detail in about a month, is called the Build Back Better Recovery Plan. Uh, this would have his historic investments in infrastructure, manufacturing and innovation, research and development and clean energy. There'd also be a focus on job uh, training and skills for workers. Uh, it said and he said that this would create 18 million good paying jobs. And he wanted to emphasize that it came with a practical call for unity. So I want to start off, Chris, I want to talk a little bit about the details of this American rescue plan, which was the first plan that he mentioned in this in this uh, two part plan. Now, the first part of the uh, American rescue plan deals with vaccinations. The vaccine, the vaccination plan will cost 20 billion dollars and it aims to vaccinate 100 million people in the first 100 days of his presidency. That's a big goal, but he put it out there. It also seeks to open the majority of K through 8 schools by the end of that same 100 days by providing school districts and states with resources and guidance that they need to reopen. And so that's the first part of his plan which just was dealing with vaccinations. Then he gets to the economic side of it. On top of the uh, $600 that many Americans just received not long ago, he said that he's going to add $1,400 to that. And he'll also extend unemployment insurance, expand paid leave, increase food assistance and raise the minimum wage to $15 in addition to a good uh, a good amount of uh, small business relief. Uh, I would also mention, and this was big to hear uh, from me and you, I know, Chris, that there'll be a temporary increase in the child tax credit. Uh, he'll also be extending uh, the eviction ban, which would give 25 million Americans housing stability and provide rental assistance for 14 million Americans. Chris, this is a big plan. Um, he's starting off very ambitious. Uh, but this is I mean, for me and you, this is basically the Biden that we wanted to see. Right. This is the Biden talking about infrastructure, talking about housing, talking about child tax credits and talking about job training rather than some of these more, you know, these absurd kind of progressive bourgeoisie culture issues. He's really hitting on the issues that, that I think people need to hear about. Now, we can talk about whether uh, the solutions are right, but these are the kind of things we wanted Biden to be talking about. What were your thoughts about uh, the stimulus plan? You're right. It, it is the kind of thing that you wanted to see uh, the president elect. Uh, as you said, it, it may be more appropriate by the time folks hear this to say the president, um, but to hear him talking about uh, these issues. And, and I think talking about them in the uh, in the frame in which he talked about them, um, you know, where he did talk about uh quality of life and kind of frame this uh, in a in a moral framework, right? Uh, we, we not only have an economic imperative to act now, he says, I believe we have a moral obligation. Uh, and so to make uh, these moral aspirations kind of like the goals uh, and even the framing of the conversation, I think is, is just very good, right? So we're talking about 
how do we deal with income inequality? How do we deal with childhood poverty? Uh, how do we deal with uh, issues of, of food access and hunger, um, housing access and homelessness? Like these are the things that we need to talk about. And then, you know, to get into the conversation, uh, Justin, I, I hope that people will engage in, in good faith um discussion around this, right? Like there uh, is there's something to be said about concern for small businesses and what will a, a sudden increase in a $15 minimum wage uh, do there? Uh, 12 weeks of paid leave, what does that do? Um, but to have the, the goal, right? We have a, a, an aspiration to get to a living wage, right? Um, and so maybe there are other proposals, other thoughts about uh, how we get to that. Maybe we're gradually rolling this thing out. Maybe uh, there's some kind of way to, to take advantage of big data and, and come up with some kind of regional living wage uh, uh, framework that's not one size fits all. There's a lot of conversation to be had around this, um, but I hope uh, people can really engage on thoughtful conversation uh, instead of just going right back to uh, kind of like this left-right binary calling names, you know, this is socialism, Republicans won't play, any of that kind of stuff. I think that we can uh, have a good debate here. Um, you know, nothing brings people together like a good fight. Uh, and so I hope that it's a, a good conversation. Man, you hit on a really important uh, conversation that needs to be had. In, in a situation like this, no just isn't enough, right? For, you know, for those people who are against this plan, and I'm not saying it's perfect, we can go back and forth on, on, on some of the flaws it may have, but to just say no isn't good enough, right? To just say no to raising the uh, minimum wage to $15 an hour is not a good enough answer. You need to, you need to provide an answer of how you're going to deal with the issues that that, that policy is, is addressing. And I think, you know, in, in some instances, we've seen this uh, from the Republicans. And I think this is why a lot of people don't have faith in McConnell, where you say no to something that may have some flaws in it, but you don't provide something that's better. You don't provide a better alternative. For, so, for instance, you say no to Obamacare, but then you never come up with a policy alternative. Right. Like people waited for, you know, you can talk, uh, uh, you know, you can talk all day about how bad it is. But when people are hurting and it is addressing a real issue and you don't come up with an alternative, like a full alternative, not just picking apart what's there, but putting together something of your own. That's going to be very important to this conversation. So unless you have an alternative that works better, that has the immediate impact that this is going to have. You know, you may want to slow down on just the, the no criticism and, and, and kind of flesh out what you think is better and what you think the best alternatives are. One of the things that stuck out for me, Chris, was housing. Uh, I would say this. Look, these are some big moves. I mean, and, and this does have an impact on us. But if you've never been evicted or homeless, slow down before you just summarily reject some of these housing measures. Take some time and try to understand the impact that a housing setback has on American families. Too often we can make decisions just from our own perspective, but we got to realize that our own perspectives and experiences are limited and understand what other people might be going through. Now, this is not the promotion of government should do everything for us and it, it'll make everything all right. We do have to realize we're in a crisis and in a crisis, there's certain ways, <laughs> there's certain things that you have to do that you might not have ordinarily done. So I'm with you. I'm not saying this is perfect. I think it was a, a strong address. 
Uh, and I think those who don't agree with it or, or think some of those measures are wrong because there are, you know, arguments against the fifteen dollar uh, uh an hour minimum, you know, minimum wage. But you need to make those arguments with alternatives that pull Americans out of where they are right now. Uh, The other thing we got to think about, though, Chris, is Biden would need 10 GOP senators to pass this through regular order. Now, there are some other options, but those options would take take longer. And this needs to be almost immediate. Uh, Republicans like uh, Patrick uh, Tomey uh, and others are already saying that this is a non-starter. So he'll likely have to compromise some of the stuff in there to get those 10 senators on board. We know some folks just aren't going to come along, but some of the senators who have made themselves more moderate or are saying they are somewhat more populist, like like Rubio, uh, they're going to need to 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 weigh in on this and try in good faith to make something happen. Um, You know, one of the things that's going to be tough for him to get through is I know that there is some money going to cities and I know a lot of Republicans do not want money going to some of these cities that were struggling because of decisions that had nothing to do with with COVID. So these are going to be some interesting conversations. Any Anything else to add to uh, to this conversation? Yeah, I mean, living uh, just in, in one of those cities, um, I think that it's an interesting uh, moment to, to just look at what the political strategy is. And, you know, I don't have that kind of inside track to know what the Biden team's political strategy is. Um, But there are a couple of ways that I see this uh, could potentially go Um, because there are things that could change here, right? There are uh, elements that could go away, the $15 minimum wage or be changed uh, into something else. Uh, The the 12 weeks of paid leave, I think those two keep sticking out to me, Justin, because having operated a small business um, and being a supporter of living wage and uh, kind of like pro-family work policies. Um, Anybody who has run a business, really anybody who runs a church, um, understands that there's a lot that goes into implementing that in a small business environment. Um, And so there's conversation there. Uh, There's room to go bigger on some stuff. Uh, You know, anytime I see uh, child tax credit, EITC, um, I always think about the fact that whenever you try to deliver that kind of help to families through a tax credit, you, you shift the logistical burden from the government to the citizen. Um, and if you're targeting low-income folks, you're shifting logistical burden to them. They have to identify themselves. They have to, be, they have to claim the credit. Um, and so I, I always think about, you know, is there a way to flip that into uh, direct payments, which are actually popular right now. Um, and so there's a lot of conversation to be had uh, here. And, and the question is, is the Biden team offering Republicans, you know, an offer they can't accept just to then be able to say, well, we tried and now we're going to, you know, try to kill the filibuster or do this, uh, a, a massive, massive thing uh, in the in the budget reconciliation? Um or if there's really a big, bold plan that is set up for compromise um, and really trying to bring people together around some of these objectives that really are moral issues in our time, you know, housing and child poverty and hunger, um, those are not ideological issues. Those are real issues 
uh, in the world. And if there are different approaches to solving them, let's get in the room and talk about them. So I really, really hope, uh, Justin, that, that there can be good, healthy uh, debate and compromise and that something can reach the president's desk uh, that really begins to address some of these really incredible issues that we're facing in our time. Yeah, if if you take uh, Biden at his word, if you take it on face value, he's really trying to negotiate and bring people together and have unity within that. I mean, we've both negotiated before. There may be some things in there that they they don't think that they're going to be able to keep in and that they you know, and that they can say, hey, we threw this out. We threw that out. Let's work together. Uh, So I'm sure there's strategy in there. But again, if you take Biden at at, based off what he says, he's saying he is trying to reach an agreement. I think we can all agree that there's going to be some some serious measures that need to be uh, made, what those will be and how this negotiation goes is yet to be seen, but definitely something worth keeping your eye on. All right. That's our first segment. We're going to take a little bit of a break and then we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you in part by Matthew five, nine fellowship who supports evangelical pastors and leaders in shepherding their communities to live the gospel and place their identity in Jesus Christ above partisanship and societal divisions. Jesus has called his disciples to be peacemakers, and that call is particularly needed in our often toxically polarized society. The Matthew 5-9 Fellowship provides resources to help pastors, leaders, and their communities faithfully navigate difficult issues without dividing over them. It fosters relationship by connecting like-minded evangelical leaders across the country. Also, they care about the personal well-being of pastors and leaders, so they provide space and opportunities to experience spiritual renewal to ensure leaders flourish both privately and publicly. A polarized country needs a peacemaking church. Check us out at Matthew59.org. Sign up for our monthly newsletter and download free resources such as our Transcending Toxic Polarization booklet using the code MATTHEW59. All right, we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. And now I want to talk about an article that I read uh, last week. Uh, Elena Newhouse, who is a Jewish writer and the founder of Tablet Magazine, wrote a very thought-provoking article last week entitled, Everything is Broken. Now, let me preface it with this. Uh, When we present an article to you, we're not saying that we endorse the full article, right? We're not doing this stuff just for uh, for, uh, confirmation bias. I don't know if if you're anything like me. I've sent friends articles that I thought were thought-provoking, and they hit me back saying, I can't believe you agree with all this. And I'm saying, brother, I didn't say I agree with all that. I'm I'm sending it to you so it, because it's something that we can think about it and kind of discuss. And so that's what this is. I think it has a lot of merits. This isn't necessarily a, a complete endorsement of it, but it's, it's an article I think you should read. Again, it's Elena, New, uh, Elena Newhouse uh, in Tablet Magazine, and the article was entitled, Everything is Broken. And she starts off by talking about how doctors had actually failed to diagnose her newborn and that she and her husband basically had to diagnose the child themselves. And which is interesting, because, Chris, because the same thing happened to me and my wife uh, recently. Uh, and so it's, it's something that happens too often. But from that experience, she talks about how the American medical system is broken. 
she talks about how medical error is the third leading cause of death in the U.S. because of issues like overmedication, which is creating addiction, the quick fix mentality, uh, needless operations. And this is a big one. Administrators who demand that doctors and nurses rush through 10 minute patient visits when an hour or more is required. I think most of us have been in a situation where we felt like we were getting rushed through the doctor's office and something needs to be done about that. But she goes from talking about how the American medical system is broken to how American institutions in general are broken. Newhouse says that for seven decades, uh, the country's intellectual life was protected uh, by the integrity of a set of institutions. And these are institutions like universities, newspapers, magazines, etc. But she says that all fell apart in the 1970s. And we can see it in American uh, economics. Uh, she, she, to explain this, she quotes a Michael Lind, who was another writer for Tablet Magazine, who said this. The strategy of American business, encouraged by neoliberal Democrats and libertarian conservative Republicans alike, has been to lower labor costs in the United States by offshoring jobs when possible to poorly paid workers in other countries and substituting unskilled immigrants willing to work for low wages in some sectors like meatpacking and construction and farm labor. She says this was the tender and the tech revolution was the match. It introduced a host of wage suppressing tactics like replacing full time employees with gig workers with no benefits. All of this creates what she calls flatness, flatness in America's economy. But flatness is just not an economic thing. She's saying that this flatness can be seen in a lot of other sectors in America. Flatness is how uh, she uh, as she says, flatness is how uh, the professional class repurposed our institutions to instill and enforce the narrow and rigid agenda of one group of people forbidding exploration or deviation. Basically, she's saying that our institutions have been reconstructed to further secular progressive goals. Uh, some elites, as she would say, uh, crushed important objectives like community, family values, and ideological diversity for the sake of goals like speed or efficiency, uh, universal accessibility, convenience, and conformity. Flatness decimated the institution that institutions that give our lives meaning like our jobs, local newspapers, main streets, rotary clubs and churches. They were all the victim of our unquenchable desire for efficiency, life without boundaries and for increased dividends for a select few money. And flatness is the mechanism by which a single ideologically driven group, modernists or secular progressives, captured the entire interlocking infrastructure of American cultural and intellectual life. It's how one institution after another fell and then entire sectors like journalism succumbed to control by by narrow bands of elitists who gave themselves the license to judge and control the lives of their perceived inferiors. She goes on to say that that the Internet and social media is a vehicle for flatness because it can quickly compel people to believe certain new untested ideas. She goes again to say flatness broke everything and gives us this uh, this example. She says the biological differences between the sexes, which had been a foundational assumption of medicine, as well as the feminist movement, was almost instantaneously replaced not only by the idea that there are numerous genders, but but 
but that reference in medicine, law, or popular culture to the existence of gender of a gender binary is actually bigoted and abusive. This is flatness. Now, this flatness or this conformity for the sake of secular progressive objectives is enforced by celebrities. It's enforced by the academy. It's enforced by the donor class. So much so that if you step out of line by saying that the emperor has no clothes or it doesn't make sense that biological men should be playing women's sports, not because you don't love them, not because you don't care about them or you think they should be bullied. We don't. But because it's common sense, then you're quickly and brutally punished. I don't know if you have been on social media, Instagram, Twitter lately, but that's really just how it goes. Chris, I was wondering just what your your thoughts on this article and just the concept of flatness. Yeah, I I did think, Justin, that it was uh, very thought provoking. And and I'm uh, I'm actually I'm I'm grateful for the uh, the language here. Right. The term uh, of flatness, because it, it gives some additional language to something that I think about um, a lot, which is this, uh, you know, the destruction of, of a lot of institutions, uh, or, or at least the, the severe weakening of a lot of institutions, not the least of which uh, is the church. Um, and I think about uh, how that concept of flatness, uh, you know, that need for expediency. Uh, she also talks a lot in the article about this concept of boundarylessness, uh, where, you know, you, you can always cross boundaries um, so that every institution begins to come, uh, you know, non-distinct, right? Um, and that begins to erode institutions. And those institutions not only uh, protect kind of like the intellectual life, um, but they're very much useful, I would even say needful, uh, when it comes to the struggle for justice, because institutions is where uh, people can come together uh, and uh, combine their ideas, combine uh, their money, combine their political strength, and make things happen that they can't uh, make happen as individuals. And one of the impacts of this flatness uh, is, is that it makes everybody exist as only an individual. And that makes the struggle for justice very, very difficult when, when we're unable to build and sustain uh, institutions. So uh, this was very, very um, thought-provoking. Um, and, and I'd like some of what she talked about in the article in terms of uh, solution um, to flatness, uh, which is, you know, a response of certain people uh, to, to the flatness to, to buck that system, right? To, to go for, for friction, to go for truth and, 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 and not give in to the conformity. Um, she, she uses this phrase, uh, and, and I'll stop after this, but she uses this phrase midway through. Um, she's describing the flatness of the geographical space in Silicon Valley. Um, and at the end of that description, she uses this phrase, uh, 
you might not even realize you're not where you started, right? Because everything is so much the same. Everything is so boundaryless. Um, and you might not even realize you're not where you started. And that describes the physical space in Silicon Valley. But it's also the case, um, I think, with a lot of people uh, in the society. And again, not the least of which is the church, where we don't even realize that the party that we've supported for a long time is not where we were at the beginning of the relationship. Um, I know from uh, some of my personal conversations with friends and colleagues that a lot of my brethren who have participated in Republican politics had that experience on January 6th. They're looking at their TV and they were realizing, wait a minute, we are not where I thought we were. Um, and we're not in a place where I want to be. Um, and I, I hope that folks who have d d participated in democratic politics uh, don't wait until some kind of catastrophic moment to realize that that party also may not be where we, we, we were when we started and may not be where folks who are participating in really want to be. Um, and so... I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, uh, on this right now. Uh, and I think this article is, is a helpful contribution to that conversation. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, because we don't even realize, and I, and I see this with, with a lot of friends and saw it in myself. We don't even realize when our beliefs change, right? Especially with social media and all the information that comes at us, people change their beliefs and it's not necessarily a conscious decision. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It just yeah. kind of slowly happens. And we don't even know that we've moved all the way to the left or we've moved all the way to the right because we, 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 it, it just happens so subtly and so stealthily. And I think that's another, another part of this. Now, let me ask you this, or well, let me say this, and then it, uh, it'll be a question. When we think about what, when we think about what flatness has done to the American economy, which is a point that I think populists get right, even if I don't agree with all the populist solutions. It is hard to deny that it wasn't brought about by neoliberal Democrats and libertarian conservative Republicans alike. And that's a point that's made in the article. Like what's going on in our economy wasn't just one side. Right. And Chris, I, I and maybe this is more of a comment, but. I think this is a word for our brothers and sisters who are constantly telling people to just choose a side because that lazy zombie like approach is perilous in cases when both sides are getting something terribly wrong. When both sides in their orthodoxy or in how they see something are really hurting the American people, just choosing a side, uh, uh, Instead of having the moral imagination to think that there's a better way to see people flourish has in part led to a gross wealth disparity in America because there simply weren't enough people to say that I'm not choosing one of the two prominent sides. I'm seeking a better approach and policy altogether. Right. I'm not just going to accept that these are the only two ways to do this or one way when they converge, as we saw this convergence uh, talks about in this article. I'm not just going to go with one of those. I'm going to do something different because there's a better way to go about it. And if we're not willing to think critically in that way, we're not willing to question the options that are put in front of us. 
Did we end up in a situation like we're in in today? Is there something to be said about that, uh, Chris? I mean, what does a moral imagination play in this flatness conversation? I, I think that uh, that there's a lot to be said for it, and and I think that it is the place where solutions can begin to come from. Right? I, I think Justin that we live in the world that we live in. Um, the the country is very divided. Folks are being asked uh, to to choose a side, and and honestly. Um, a lot of folks, you know, a vast, vast majority of the, the players, um, and I'm not just talking about like big, big time players, like people who think about civics and politics from, you know, those who are in, you know, the top levels of federal government to folks who uh, sit around in neighborhoods and discuss politics. The vast majority of people uh, have in some way, shape or form chosen uh one of these sides. Um, and so I do think that we are in need of uh, some sort of an awakening. Um, and, and that awakening requires prophetic voice. Uh, and I think it has to start inside of the, the tribes, right? Like we have, um, you know, institutions that, that are falling apart because everybody's like, Nobody will serve the institution. Everybody wants to be famous. Nobody wants to be faithful. Um, we have um, a situation where, you know, everything is 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 about, you know, trending and not truthfulness. And you won't say truth if it doesn't trend. And you won't be candid if you uh, are, if you can be, if you're going to be canceled, right? Um, and so you have these ideological sides. And I think on both sides of the aisle, there is a need for leaders uh, who refuse to allow, like you were talking about, Justin, political discourse to be reduced to a, a one-question survey, right? Because um, on, on, on the right right now, it is, do you support Trumpism, yes or no? And that is the survey. On, you know, do you support and embrace wholesale progressive orthodoxy on the left? Yes or no. And we have to have leaders who have the moral imagination to say something uh, inside of their own tribe, something more thoughtful and more inspired and more beneficial than just yes or no. Um, but I, I think that a lot of it uh, is going to have to start inside of those tribes. There are a lot of us who you're on one side of the other, whether you like it or not. And I'm not saying that, that you are ideologically trapped in that space, but you're participating uh, in a space. You're voting there, you're volunteering, you're giving, um, you're running for office, you're in that space. You might even be an elected official listening to this. And I think inside of those spaces, we need people who can speak to your own tribe and say something more thoughtful than yes or no, because your, your tribe only wants to hear you say yes or no. And I think we have to be able to say something more thoughtful. Yeah, that, that, that's that's really helpful, man. And, and keep in mind, this is coming from two people who participate in party politics. This isn't saying that you shouldn't be in a party, but you can be in a party and not just be taking one side or the other. Right. Uh, if you're using it as a tool instead of a master. Here's a here's the last quote. Here's the last thing and I'll say about this. And this quote really was really interesting to me. But Alana says this. Newhouse says this. The professional class 
insist on sameness and purity. They have turned the once independent parts of the American cultural complex into a mutually validating pipeline for conformists with approved viewpoints who then credential, promote, and marry each other. Now, this really made me think, and I want people to keep in mind, this isn't a condemnation of one group. This is a critique, and no group is above critique on the Church Politics Podcast, including our own and ourselves. Um, but, but this made me think about something, because the professional class says that it's tolerant. It's always telling us how diverse it is and how it values diversity. But even in the best cases, when you see a, a level of diversity, it really isn't tolerant or diverse if, if you dig a little bit deep deeper. And, and here's what I mean by that. The professional class might have different skin colors. They might have different aesthetics. But in many instances, they are lured into thinking the same way and having the same values. Most of the professionals that I know that are in this professional consultant class have very progressive values, at least the ones that they'll talk about publicly. Now, Christians and Muslims are loved and accepted into these groups if their theology conforms to progressivism or if it is really just a flavor or brand of progressivism. And we all know how we can turn our beliefs, even Christian beliefs, into something that just conforms to everything that progressivism says. Right. I think we've all seen that happen. And I'll just give you an example from my own life. Um, most of my friends that I went to law school with, uh, whether they were raised in the church or not raised in the church, now summarily reject traditional or classy or classic values outright. Just just reject it off top. And it's not because they can explain that point of view in detail without kind of using these stale talking points about, you know, a very shallow conception of love and equality. They're not really explaining it in depth, but it's because. That's how people of their ilk are supposed to think, right? Accepting a very permissive and, as you say, Chris, individualistic culture seems like what intellectual and, and sophisticated people are supposed to do. But what I think after reading this article, like you said, it does give language to this. I think that's flatness. I think it's another way to promote conformity and to disincentivize critical thinking. We think of ourselves as smart people, but our analysis isn't really that deep. See, we assume that that smart people are making deep analyses on every issue, but they're really not. You may be smart in law. You may be smart in medicine and have a very shallow analysis when it comes to family, when it comes to community, when it comes to faith. Sometimes we just go with what we think is new or what we think is modern. Now, most of these things aren't even new and modern. If you read through the Bible, you see a lot of stuff we're dealing with today has been talked about and critiqued for years and years, centuries and centuries. But that's how people think. Like if we're told that this is the way that enlightened and evolved people think, we believe what is said and we believe that that's the way we're supposed to think, even if it doesn't make sense. And I can name you and I, Chris, can name issue after issue that makes no sense but in popular culture, you have all these influencers and all these professionals and all these celebrities going along with it. And it just doesn't make sense. But that's what you're supposed to believe. And, and you tell me if I'm wrong. I really do think that's a product of flatness and being in being part of the professional class, being in some of these circles 
now that I have this language, I kind of see it all the time. What, what, what are your thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that it um, it is a product of, of flatness. Um, and I, I think the only thing that I would add uh, is that it is a tool of oppression. Um, I think flatness for the most part really is because, again, institutions, organized people, the capacity to join, to affiliate, uh, to uh, establish and adhere to tradition um, is not only for those, you know, believers who are listening to this podcast, I mean, just deeply and fundamentally Christian, those things are necessary for the struggle against injustice or the struggle for justice, because when you tell people uh, that they have to go through the world on their own, making their own decisions, making their own rules, using their own kind of shallow analysis of the world, never learning from people who uh, have come before, never joining with people who are now and, and, and agreeing to some uh, consistent way of doing things. When you say that to folks, if those folks are already wealthy, they already have power, um, and they may do all right. But when you say that to people who are poor, who do not have power, who have not had uh, the greatest access to education, um, you are uh, you are taking away the greatest ability that they will have uh, to struggle against that injustice, which is to affiliate with one another uh, inside of ongoing institutions that over time can build power, change power dynamics in ways that benefit uh, folks who are experiencing their condition. Um, and I think the assumption of the kind of uh, progressive class in, in that professional class um, that our benevolence and our rhetoric in some way is going to lift up in some real or practical way uh, people who are, are suffering and, and, and kind of are at the bottom that is nonsense, right? Like, just by our rhetorical benevolence, we're not going to lift anyone. We're not going to change anything. One of the best ways to change is to endow those folks uh, who who are interested in struggle with the capacity to form institutions, to associate together, and to create real change. And this whole idea of flatness that has taking over every space and we pump it uh, into everybody's minds. It, it is damaging, I think, in almost every space, but it is damning to people who are suffering. And, and, and I just, if you can't tell, uh, Justin, I really, really don't like it. Now, I hear you but, you, but you hit on something. I mean, you made some great points right there. You hit on something that, that's really deep. It's oppressive. Even if it's subtle, even if it's 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 not impressive in the way where the, the wolf comes and bites you, it's oppressive in, in kind of a subtle way because it's easier to control people when you take them out of their community. It's easier to control people when you take them out of their community and make them think of themselves as individuals and cut them off from those beliefs and cut them off from those ties that they had before. Then they belong to you. 
And it's and and this isn't just something that we see in America. I think this is a global conversation. You know, people talk about some of the progressive things that the Pope has done. But one of the things that the Pope has addressed was what he called ideological colonization. Uh, uh, There have been some other cardinals in Africa that talked about cultural imperialism. Right. And to me, it's getting at the same the same idea of flatness. Uh, so so very deep conversation. I, I think that's one we may have to hit on an, another time, too. Uh, but we're going to go to a break and we will be right back. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction, the And Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility. This is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we're back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right Reverend Chris Butler. Uh, now, this is a, a little more fun. We're going to lighten the mood a little bit, but this is a serious this is a serious a concept. I want to I want to I want to tell you all that first for good measure. Let me let me say this. And I think this is the right way to start off this conversation. I'd like to give a shout out to all the Laker haters. Uh, I believe the Lakers uh, lost to uh, Golden State uh, last night. It might be two nights by the time you hear this, but always good, I think, for America uh, to see that happen. And, and, and since it's NFL playoff season, since we're seeing, you know, the the NBA playing right now, there's just a lot of sp- sports and, 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 and tension in sports going on. I think this is a perfect time to revisit what I called my sports tribalism theorem. That's right. My sports tribalism theorem. Now, you guys who have been listening to church politics for years have already heard this theorem, but I thought it would be good to bring back up because we have a lot of new listeners. And I think this is something folks need to hear again. Now. The sports, let me say this, the sports tribalism theorem is something that I've been working on for for quite a bit. And, And here's what it is. Right. It's the idea that people are naturally tribal. So 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 as humans, I think we are naturally tribal. We just have some of those instincts for better or for worse. That's that's what we have. And I think that when it comes to tribalism, that politics is actually a terrible place to act on that tribalism. I mean, sport uh, politics is probably the worst place to do it. But. On the other hand, sports is a great place to act on that tribalism. In fact, I would say that sports best serve society as an outlet for our innate tribalism. Now, now bear with me. Just just hold on. I'm, I'm going to tell you why. Sports fanatic, fanaticism is the perfect place to release your most uninformed, raw, base tribalism. You don't need a reason to like a certain team. 
You just like that team, right? You don't need a, a real reason. It could be where you're from. It could be any reason. You make up the reason. You don't need a. You don't really need a reason to like a certain team. They don't even have to be a quality team. But go ahead and be a rabid fan and support them unconditionally. That's what about that's what fanaticism is about. You don't have to be rational. You don't have to be logical. You don't even have to be consistent or intellectually honest in your assessment when you support a a team. You can be tribal when it comes to sports at all costs, and that's kind of what makes it fun. Well, at the same time, being uninformed, being rabid and supporting political parties and politicians just because they're part of your tribe is a terrible idea in civics and in culture. It's perfectly fine, again, when it comes to sports. I think that's the greatest contribution that sports makes to society. But being tribal and defending your side at all costs, going along with whatever your side says, making sure that you're attacking the other side, whether they do good or do bad. And if they do good, make sure that you tell the rest of your tribe, do not give them any credit. That's the wrong way to go about politics, because politics have a, a, a more serious impact on the culture and long lasting impacts. But again, sports is where sports is where I think should be our outlet for this kind of tribalism. Now, the theorem does not condone sports violence, intimidation, harassment, any of that, any of that stuff. But everything else is pretty much fair game. So, again, the theorem is basically this. We are all tribal. Our tribalism should not come out in our politics. We need to be critical thinkers. We need to look for the uh, uh, the the good of others. We need to do all these things when it comes to politics, because we know how important politics uh, is. And if you don't, you need to read our book. But when it comes to sports, that's what sports are for. That's what makes them exciting. So I know this might be the first time, Chris, that you've heard this theorem. And I just want to give your point of view on my sports tribalism theorem. Well, you know, I think that uh, when you when you write this thing thoroughly, you'll uh, be nominated for a, uh, a Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, I, I mean, I, I love it. It's so spot on. Um, I, I uh, it's funny because I was uh, communicating, uh, you know, uh, these very important data over the last 24 hours. Well, I guess it hasn't even been 24 hours, but Zach Levine on the Chicago Bulls scored 30 points for the seventh time uh, this season, which is just in clear evidence that the Bulls are ready to make a championship run. <laughs> um, and, you know, those those data are, are clear, right? <laughs> uh, and and, and it's, it's uh, but, you know, it, it's very okay for that to be my argument in sports. Um, but to, to play fast and loose like that with data and politics, like people do sometimes, um, probably not so hot. Uh, so I, I, I love it. Um, I, I can tell you, I, I never thought about it in that frame, but I, I do think that it's a, it, it's, it's real and hopefully more people will become, uh, you know, Bulls fans, Bears fans, if you are listening to the podcast and you don't know who's going to win the World Series next year, it's the White Sox. Uh, so there's a lot of room uh, for, you know, if you haven't experienced sports tribalism, uh, I've been tried for you. Uh, it's called Chicago, and you can get on board. Hey, try it out for yourself. But, but, but let me tell you this. This theorem has really made me have more 
grace towards people who say that LeBron is the GOAT. Because before before, you know, before really embracing this theorem, I didn't understand how you could come such a, to such a ridiculous conclusion. But after understanding this theorem, after understanding tribalism and how people just jump on bandwagons and just say whatever, I actually have a little more grace towards people who would make the ridiculous claim that uh, LeBron is the GOAT over Mike, uh, over Michael Jordan. Like my dear friend Esau McCauley, who I almost uh, unfriended uh, because he was making that claim in public on Twitter and it was almost unbelievable. But 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 on a serious note, guys, I think I mean, I do think this theorem is helpful to think about it this way. It is really, really bad. And the main point of this is it's really, really bad to be tribal, illogical, to defend the indefensible and all the other things that come with tribalism in the civic space. As anybody who's read our book, Compassion and Conviction knows, anybody who's been listening to this podcast, politics gives Christians a robust opportunity to love our neighbors by defending human flourishing and promoting and defending defending human dignity and promoting human flourishing. Right. And so to bring tribalism into that conversation is a, a bad look. But again, if we need an outlet, that outlet should be sports. So that's my argument. I'm sticking to it. I may have to write an article on this or something, man, just to just to really get it out there and think it through a little, a little bit more. But I think there's something to it, Chris. As always, man, great talking to you today. You got anything to add? I will just say if the theorem is true, uh, Justin, according to it, there is no grace for people who think that LeBron James is the GOAT. Um, That's the conundrum because there's almost grace because you understand that they could be unreasonable, but then you don't have to be great. Man, that's deep. See, this this is just getting deeper and deeper. I don't have to. I don't have to give them grace, do I? See, that makes me feel a genius. uh, But, you know, that is apparently a, a, a glaring flaw. I got to fix that. That's the one thing I got to fix. Or maybe it's just one of those things where we got to live in that tension, man. We got to live in the tension of just not giving grace to people who say ridiculous things in sports while realizing that we say ridiculous things, too. I I don't know, but we'll figure it out, Chris. As usual, Ann Camp, uh, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp, we'll holler at you.